Welcome back to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyal Law School professor Jessica Levinson, and today I am thrilled to say we are joined by Zoe Tillman. She is a senior reporter for BuzzFeed News, where she covers courts, justice, and the intersection of law and politics. So nothing important. Uh, Welcome, Zoe. Thank you for passing judgment with us. I am thrilled to be here, Jessica. Thanks for having me on. I love to judge. (laughs) (laughs) And that is what we are here to do. And you cover a lot of judges. Now, we could talk about so many things with you, but today we'd like to focus on our coverage of the cases involving who took part in the insurrection at the Capitol on January 6th. I know you just came out of virtual court covering one of those hearings. And I'd like to kind of set the table, begin at the beginning. How many people have been charged thus far? Yeah, so it changes every day at this point still. Um, but the the latest tally that I've got as of right now is 580 roughly. Uh, There may have been someone unsealed in the last five minutes. Who knows? You know, and I think it's an interesting number in that when we started, DOJ and the FBI, you know, they said, we're going to hold everyone accountable who broke the law that day. And at the time, it was sort of hard to tell if they could, um, because Mm. most people who went inside left and went home and scattered back across the country. And, you know, early on, it was a, a... wait and see, you know, was it going to be 100, 200, 300? And we're at 580. It's still going strong. You know, I think there's a realistic chance we get to the the 800 number, which is roughly the estimate of how many people went inside the Capitol that day. So I think it is sort of notable that we've crossed the halfway point. It's still going. Um, and it's, it's, a si- it's, it's the largest prosecution effort ever, um, as far as, as the Justice Department has said. So it's it's something. Wow, that's really important perspective, which I had never just stopped to think about the sheer size in comparison to other historic moments, which luckily for us, there really is no exact comparison. And how are they finding these people? You said they scattered. They're, a lot of people, for lack of a better term, were kind of in the wind. What have been some of the investigation techniques here? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people um, got themselves caught. Uh, There are a lot of cases, especially early on, where someone who went on Facebook or Twitter or Snapchat or any number of platforms, and in some cases, literally said, I was there. Here's a photo of me in the Capitol. It's me. (laughs) Um, Those were easy (laughs) to find. And They were arrested and charged. Um, And I think there are other folks where it's been one or two steps removed, where um, they talked to friends and family, or they um, posted a Snapchat photo, uh, a Snapchat story where it disappeared, but someone they followed uh, took a screenshot and then tipped off the FBI and they came knocking. And then from there, it gets more complicated. You know, there's been some use of facial recognition software where they've been running images through different public databases to try and find matches. And when I say they, I mean um, local law enforcement agencies have pitched in, the FBI. There's a whole band of amateur sleuths out there who have dedicated themselves to trying to identify people who have made it harder to be found. 
Um, and, uh, it's a huge network of tipsters, family, friends, coworkers, exes, um, they've all reported in. So it's a real mix. Um, some, some folks have been easy to find and some have been harder cases to put together. Never underestimate the power of a motivated ex-girlfriend or spouse or boyfriend. Yes. Um, And again, the kind of stunning audacity of posting yourself on social media and really assisting law enforcement in, I think, a way that they probably could not have imagined 10 years ago. And as we all know from a recent Supreme Court case, snaps can live forever, but... um, more on that in another time. So you've already told us a little bit about this group, which is that they're a group who's active on social media, have you know dated or been married um, and divorced. And could you give us a little bit of a character sketch of maybe just a few of the, you think, more kind of interesting players or maybe people where we've seen pictures of them splashed across our TV or computer screens? Yeah. I mean, I think the most common thread is that these were by and large supporters of former President Donald Trump. And I think it's always important to say that because early on there was a you know false narrative going around that, oh, it was Antifa, it was plants, you know, this was left-wing agitators. You know, I think the evidence has borne out that that was there's no basis for that, um, that these were largely Trump supporters who came there for the Stop the Steal rally and then marched to the Capitol and did whatever else they did when they crossed the police barriers. So that is the most common um, identifying feature of the folks who have been arrested so far. Um, From there, it really varies. They're from pretty much every state in the United States. Um, It's majority men, I believe, but a lot of women. It's uh, younger people, people in college. Um, It's retirees. It's everyone in the middle. Some people came with their families. It was a family outing and they've been charged together with their spouses, their parents, their siblings, their cousins, their aunts and uncles. Um, There is a a separate group that I think has gotten more attention, which is the sort of the conspiracy cases where we have members of far-right extremist groups like the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, who, where there is, you know, there's been some evidence of pre-planning that they were gathering together tactical gear to bring weapons, uh, in some, a few cases, stashing firearms at a hotel outside of DC. So, you know, I think those are the, considered the more serious cases in terms of understanding what kind of risk there was that day, um, and what kind of risk people on the ground, whether it's police, members of Congress, what they faced and the crowd they were facing. And yeah, it's, it was just a, it's been a real cross section of America. Uh, So it's, it's hard to say, you know, there's a a specific character type here. Not to make light of it, but it feels like there's a horrible satirical commercial somewhere in there. Like you can either go to Disney world or you can go to the Capitol (laughs) insurrection when you think of it as, and again, I mean, I feel so, deeply about how dangerous that was, but it is stunning to me that it was viewed as a a family outing, although of course that that makes sense. And I'm very glad that you began with the facts, which is that this is 
you can draw a through line between what former President Trump said uh, for months and what he said at the, I'm, this, these are my words, and what he said at the Capitol and what happened and that this was not Antifa. And so we've learned a little bit about these people. Can you tell us, I know the charges vary so widely, but could you give us a little bit of a idea of what some of these charges are? Are they property crimes? Uh, are we talking about destruction of the Capitol, trespassing? Um, obviously, I know that there are more serious crimes. What's kind of the gamut here in terms of the charges you're seeing? Yeah, so pretty much everyone is facing um, really the same three and four baseline misdemeanor counts for, like you said, trespassing, that there are a series of of statutes that make it illegal to go into the Capitol and the Capitol grounds, specifically when you're not allowed to be there, to parade and demonstrate inside the Capitol when you're not allowed to, disorderly conduct. So pretty much everyone is facing those baseline counts. And that there are roughly half of the 580 or so defendants are just facing those misdemeanors. So those are cases where the evidence is, you know, John Doe from wherever, um, they place him in the Capitol, they've got surveillance footage, they've got a Facebook post from him saying, yep, I was there. Uh, And that's the end of it. Those are sort of the misdemeanor general facts of those cases. Um, The next group are people who just walked inside, you know, went inside, they they were there illegally. But beyond that, there's some evidence that they were there because they wanted to stop Congress from certifying the results of the election. Hmm. And those people are being hit as well with a felony count for obstructing an official proceeding. Um, so it's not that they, it's not, you know, no violence, no property destruction, but there was some evidence that, you know, they posted, we're here to stop the steal. We were on video looking for Nancy Pelosi, um, you know, where's Nancy, something more that's there. And that those are the, the folks who are getting that obstruction count plus the misdemeanors. And then finally, there are sort of the, the third bucket are really just the more serious cases. These are the people who assaulted law enforcement officers and there's a, an assault charge that they're facing. If they used a weapon, that bumps it up to an even more serious felony. Um there are a few people charged with property destruction, but not many. Um, I think there are a few cases where there's video of someone breaking a window, but it's actually not a huge number of cases involving property destruction. And then there are the conspiracy cases, and that's the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, um, you know, cases where they've got communications, text messages, planning in advance. They're all members of a group. Um, they raised money to go and stop the steal. So I think you've really got sort of those three main categories. And then mm-hmm. within that, a couple variations, you know, maybe someone went inside the Capitol and they were holding a weapon and that bumps up the seriousness of the counts that they're facing. But if they didn't hit anyone, that's sort of less serious than the assault cases. So there are some nuances there, but that's, that's generally what's been charged so far. Um, I think that the second part of the answer to that question is it's important to note what people haven't been charged with yet, mm-hmm. um, which is at the start, the the acting U.S. attorney in D.C. at the time had brought up the possibility of sedition charges being brought, and that hasn't happened yet. That would be – those are – it's an extremely unusual 
charge to see. It's it's rare that it's been brought generally, and and we haven't seen it yet. And it's not clear if that's still on the table, if it's a thread that they dropped. We just don't know. But that hasn't been charged so far. That's really helpful to think about it in terms of three different buckets. And then that fourth bucket that hasn't been filled yet and gradations of kind of least serious to, to most serious. And maybe going bucket by bucket, have the people charged come forward with similar defenses? Are the defenses all over the place? Or for the people who are generally charged with similar crimes, are they all coming forward with a similar defense here? It's still early. So we haven't, there had no cases have gone to trial. So, and we haven't seen many substantive challenges beyond there's a challenge to whether the obstruction charge can apply to something like what Congress was doing on January 6th, but that's sort of a more of a legal challenge Mm -hmm. as opposed to a defense, personal defense. Um, In some of the cases where the government has wanted to keep defendants in jail pretrial, we've seen some early instances of, of people saying, you know, Trump told me to go to the Capitol. I was following the orders of the commander in chief. Um, Judges have swiftly and emphatically said that that's a terrible argument and they are not going to entertain it. Um, That someone can tell you what to do, but you are ultimately culpable for what you do. So I think that hasn't gone over well in court. And I think then generally there's just been a an expression of, you know, what I did wasn't that bad for a lot of the misdemeanor Mm -hmm. folks. It's, you know, I didn't break anything. I didn't hit anyone. I just walked in, I walked out. Um, and, um, so far it hasn't really helped anyone, uh, all that much. Um, but if any cases go to trial, it'll be interesting to see if that could persuade a jury that someone's not criminally liable, even if the evidence is clear that they walked inside the Capitol when they weren't supposed to. But I think it's just too early to know sort of what the the defenses could be and more importantly, whether they could work. Well, and that's perfect because it brings up one of my next questions, which is obviously, although you know we're having this conversation in late summer and the insurrection happened in the beginning of January, January 6th, it's still fairly early for such a huge undertaking by the Department of Justice. And again, we're talking about the Department of Justice because we're all we're talking about federal crimes here. There are no state crimes that are at issue um, because we're talking about things that happen in the nation's capital and potential federal criminal liability. But can you tell us where are we in a lot of these cases have We've seen the charging documents. We've seen maybe very beginning pretrial motions. I know you've been following some of these hearings. Um, Can you remind us, where are we in the stage of a number of these bigger cases? Yes. So uh, really most of the cases are just in a holding pattern as um, the massive amount of evidence gets sifted through and then produced to defense counsel across the vast majority of these cases. I think a, a big um, 
element that's complicating this is that although pretty much everyone is charged individually in their own case, but there is a central database of, you know, I don't even, I don't even know the term, how many bytes, gigabytes, terabytes. I don't, it's a massive amount of data, videos, photos, that's all been collected about this single incident that they're all charged in. So because of, you know, the prosecutor's responsibility to turn over anything exculpatory, you know, anything relevant to someone's defense, they have to go through all of that evidence to then know what to turn over in each individual case. And that's been a huge undertaking and it's significantly delayed what the normal timeline would be in what might seem like a pretty straightforward case. So that has really delayed the general timeline on track that these cases would normally be on. Um, We know that plea deals, plea offers have been extended in a, a number of cases. We don't know exactly how many, but especially in the misdemeanor cases, they've been offering plea deals and people are starting to accept those. We've got about three dozen accepted guilty pleas so far. There are more on the calendar. So that's that's starting to resolve, but it's a slow process. And then we've got a handful of cases with trial dates set, which could change You know, if a, a plea deal is being hammered out in the background. Um, but I, for the vast majority, it's it's just waiting and going through evidence and understanding the posture that each individual is in this otherwise collective investigative effort. Yeah, that's, I th- I think for people who are used to watching the criminal justice system unfold in you know, a 23 minute episode or a 52 minute <laughs> episode, uh, it feels like this is slow, but in so many ways, at least from my outside perspective, it's actually given the scope, it's happening quite quickly. And given, of course, how much attention there is and how careful the Department of Justice needs to be. And this is a weird question that I still want to get at, which is obviously there are no two defendants that are the same. Uh, there are some similar charges, but do you see in covering these cases a similar approach by the judges, kind of regardless of whether or not a Republican president or a Democratic president appointed them? Um, are the judges, you, you had mentioned that, you know, people have kind of said, well, some people said, well, President Trump told me to, and therefore I have no agency and therefore I cannot be guilty. Um, and that that seems to have fallen on deaf ears. But is there a consistent approach that you see from the judges? Are they generally taking these charges very seriously? Do they have a kind of specific approach either to the defendants or the Department of Justice here? Yeah, I think the most common theme that I've observed so far is that the judges are trying to keep as much as they can, and not always successfully, I think, the larger political debate and conversation uh, around what happened on January 6th out of the courtroom and sort of insisting on a common set of facts. So, you know, uh, s- stopping defendants who want to try to bring in um, some of the sort of voter fraud conspiracy theories or, um, you know, per- downplay what happened on January 6th. I think the judges are looking at the evidence that's available and saying, you know, we're not going to, this is not going to be a forum for you to litigate the election. I think that's been 
pretty common among judges of all ideological stripes that they're folk they're interested in. Did you break the law when you stepped foot across a police barrier? Did you hit a cop? Um, they want to try to get at those questions and resolve the cases on those grounds and not turn it into some kind of political theater. Um, and I think the other other thing is that they are mindful of the the rights of these defendants in the face of sort of this massive prosecutorial effort and also the massive amount of public scrutiny and sort of the 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 pitchfork mentality that that is there in terms of holding people accountable. So, you know, they're trying to make decisions about things like pretrial detention. And they've said, you know, this is not about who you supported in the election. It's it's not about what you believe in the back of your mind about the election. You know, if if the government hasn't proven that you're a, a clear threat to public safety, I'm inclined to let you go home. Um, so I think they are trying to keep the broader political whatever out of court, and it's not doesn't always happen successfully. But I, I think that's the common the common thing I see in how judges are trying to handle this crush of cases. And frankly, that should be the way every judge handles a case, right? Which is, <laughs> I know that there is this, I think you said political stuff that's happening. And in Very this case- eloquent, I know. <laughs> no, no, but it's true. I mean, there is so much political stuff going on. And it's, look, this was about an election. This was about a president who- without any basis said there's massive fraud who said stop a steal that was never a steal i'm i know you're a reporter i'm only speaking for myself here but it is so important to say that's not what's happening inside the courtroom inside the courtroom it's here are the facts of what you did on those days at these times and does your behavior fall under the statute not well, did you have a problem with your mail-in ballot that made you think maybe we can't trust the integrity of the election? So I think it's so important that you said that and that we remember that courtrooms should not be political theaters. And I'm I'm happy to hear that in this area, and frankly, it seems like in so many areas, the, the judiciary is holding. When we look, for instance, at the post-election litigation, where I think every federal judge who looked at those challenges said, no way, the evidence is right. not there. Right. And so we two questions as we wrap up our conversation today. First, is there something that you wish people knew about the Capitol insurrection or is something in your reporting where you wish you could spend more time or that people would focus more heavily on something you've already written? Yeah. So a thread that came through after several months of covering all of these different cases and the the charging papers that sort of laid out in detail how each person made it to the Capitol, what motivated them. It's another way of understanding the impact that Donald Trump had on so many of his supporters and the way that they think about the world. So it wasn't just that everyone came because of the election um, and were there to, you know, quote unquote, stop the steal. Something that kept coming up was that people were using other sort of Trumpisms as they thought about going to the Capitol, defending what they did that day, you know, telling their friends and family to ignore the fake news, saying that they were there to, you know, drain the swamp, to take out the deep state, to take back the country by literally taking the Capitol building. So I think these cases are 
also another way of understanding sort of the long-term um, effect that Trump has had on the way that many Americans think about the world and their government and reality and the ramifications of that long-term. I think that's a, an ongoing issue that we'll have to reckon with. That's such a helpful reminder. Again, the context that you provided us is really useful here because so many of us are just kind of looking at headlines of, oh, these cases are continuing and what are they about and what are the defenses? And you've really organized that for us. And it makes me think of another question, which is how did you get into covering this beat in the first place? You know, I've been covering the federal courthouse in D.C. for almost a decade now. And, you know, in one sense, it was just the biggest legal story on my beat. There was just no question after January 6th that this was going to dominate what was happening in that particular courthouse. Um, It was the biggest legal story after the post-election lawsuits, which was what I had been covering literally up until January 6th. Um, So in that sense, it was sort of just a natural progression. And then I think from there, it's, it's, it's just been a fascinating and I think really valuable way to understand a lot of other things that are happening in our country right now. You know, the political climate, social climate, um, it's a window into a lot of other stories, looking at it through the lens of these cases. So, you know, it's it's both a natural progression of the beat and also just a um, an issue that I, I'm interested in and care about and hope to add some value to the conversation by covering. Well, Zoe Tillman, you certainly added value to our conversation on passing judgment. So we thank you very much for your time. Thanks so much for having me on. You can find Zoe on Twitter at Zoe Tillman. You can find me on Twitter at Levinson Jessica, the podcast on Twitter at Pass Judgment Pod. We've talked a lot about the insurrection, all of the events leading up to it, the insurrection itself, and we've been following the political and legal stories, and I think this has been an invaluable part of that story. So we hope everybody enjoyed the episode, and we wish you a good day. Thank you.